Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 51 with Tom Dawkins of the Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Good morning and good evening wherever you are in the world. My name is Nathan Chan and I am your host coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Now, I'm really excited about today's guest. His name is Tom Dawkins and he's the founder of Start Some Good. And a lot of you guys, you know, I get a lot of our community reach out to us. And one request that I've been getting a lot is to interview more social entrepreneurs, people that are doing some good. And Tom is the founder of Start Some Good, and it's a crowdfunding platform for nonprofits, social entrepreneurs, and change makers. And, you know, what Tom does and has done with his work as an entrepreneur is extremely admirable. And if you're looking to start your own social enterprise or any sort of social venture, where your impact can be tracked and measured and it's it's doing good for the world, which is, you know, something that on this interview I originally found it difficult to wrap my head around. But after speaking with Tom, he really, really unpacked things on what it means and how you can create your own social enterprise. Even if you're a capitalist like me, there are some elements that you can add to your business that makes it I guess, contributing to the world more and using your business as a force for good. And that's something that I would like to focus on in the near future for Founder. So there's a lot here to take away, especially if you're really, really interested on what it means to create a business that makes an impact and a serious impact that can be measured and tracked you know, Tom is an absolute superstar and he unpacks everything from how to start a social enterprise, how to track your impact, ideas around that, how he started and how he started Start Some Good, which is an epic crowdfunding platform. All right, now that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps more than you can imagine. All right, let's jump in. How'd you get your job? You know, my answer is not so dissimilar from from many of the other people you've spoken to, which is that I kind of the only place I've ever really where where I felt I fitted was the things that I was doing for myself. I often do describe myself as many entrepreneurs do as borderline unemployable, although I have some, had some great experiences in in bigger organisations as well. I I just love starting things up, and I just got I got started on that really relatively early. I actually founded my first non profit when I was still at high school, and then two while I was at university, and the and the kind of second of those university era nonprofits became what I did with my 20s, an organization called Vibewire, 
that I led for eight years and grew to have offices in three states. And we did a lot of work around empowering young people to express themselves on the issues and create the cultures that they cared about. Um, and so Vibe was 15 years old now. I left in 2008. And I didn't really know what I'd do after that. You know, I had that kind of general bundle of skills that you get as a as a starter upper of things. I'd done HR and marketing and fundraising and a whole bunch of different things. And I didn't quite know where I'd fit. And so I ended up traveling, uh, moving to the US and spent a couple of years in Washington, D.C. as the first social media director for an international NGO called Ashoka. And that was a really exciting time. And Ashoka's mission is to create an everyone a changemaker world. So they think a lot about how you can inspire everyone to get involved in you know, creating the changes that they feel are needed for their communities. And my job was to figure out how social technologies could help bring about an everyone a changemaker world. And so we thought a lot about, you know, how is it that you inspire people to take on that identity or that role as a change maker? And that often starts from an act of self-permission, you know, that you've got to believe in yourself, that believe that you can create change in order to actually do so. But once you have that kind of confidence and you have a great idea, then what? And what I observed over and over again was that the social sector wasn't very good at funding innovation, that it wasn't very good at supporting the new. Quite different from, I guess, a lot of the, the, the bias in the kind of more commercial startup, particularly the tech startup world, which has a real appetite for risk. In fact, if you're not risky enough, if you're not if you're not trying to go a thousand X, they're often not interested. But in the social sector, the the bias is the opposite. They want you know they want small, sensible plans that can be measured. They'd rather everyone just hit a single than a tried than tried to hit a home run and risk getting struck and risk striking out. So the sector doesn't deal with failure very well. So while I was thinking about all these sorts of issues, I observed that a similar sort of a problem that was faced by my friends who were creative entrepreneurs and artists was being overcome with the help of crowdfunding. That people who had had previously really struggled to get funding through the traditional sources were in fact finding that they could connect directly with an audience who really cared about their work and was prepared to fund them to continue to do that work. And it didn't take long for the light bulb to go off that this is exactly what social entrepreneurs need as well. And so I ultimately founded Start Some Good with a former colleague from Ashoka, um, Alex Budak, and we started working on it in late 2010, and the website launched almost exactly four years ago. Wow. And I'm curious, I, there's a few things I'd like to unpack there. Vibe Wire, was it Vibe Wire or Vibe Wine? No, Vibe Wire. Vibe, Vibe Wire. Wire. Vibe Wire. You founded that yourself. Why did you leave? I aged out. So, I mean, it's a, so it's a non-profit. So, you know, it's a little bit different, I guess, when you found a non-profit for, for a profit. There's no such thing as kind of, you know, there's your exit strategies at some point, you just walk away. That's, that's the only exit strategy for a non-profit. And Vibewire was, was built to empower young people, which for us was 16 to 30. And one of the ways in which we did that was to ensure that the organization itself was entirely youth-led. So while it, it's a bit more blended now, so the, the board is no longer youth only, but, but at the time I was running it, all our staff were under 30 and all our board members were under 30 as well. And so I left when I, on my 29th birthday. You know, we, we actually, I, I would have aged out a year later and I thought, well, I don't actually want to hit that deadline and kind of have to walk away as a result of a technicality. I want to feel a, a greater sense of agency over the timing. Um, and I just felt like this is kind of what I've done with my 20s and I have to figure out what I'm going to do next. I see. And how does that structure work? Like, if you have an NFP, do you still own, like, equity? Like, I'm sure many no. of our audience ha Can you give us a little bit of an insight of of how a social enterprise or a non-for-profit is structured and how that side of the business works? Because I, I personally don't know the answer either, so I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah, so, it's, so, so I mean, social enterprise is a, is a word that gets used to mean quite a few different things. 
but the way that I would generally use social enterprise is to say a, a for-profit company that's that's mission driven, that's focused on creating a social outcome as well as perhaps personal outcomes for the founders. And indeed, if you succeed at the first, you'll almost certainly succeed at the second if it is a for-profit. You know, so so I do have own, you know I have equity and start some good. I'm I'm the major owner of start some good. But with a with a non-profit, it's a it's we were an association, so we were owned by our members. You know, who had to pay their ten dollars a year membership dues. And that, that gave them a vote at the AGM, and that elected the board each year. And the board ultimately was responsible for appointing, you know, the CEO and the, and the other staff. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I just walked away. I mean, I didn't own anything. I came back onto the board for a couple of years, for about 18 months when I first came back to Australia. I was really excited to, you know, I was obviously thrilled that it had continued and was keen to, to re-engage when I got back to Sydney. But I had to step back off again when life just got, too, just too hectic with start some good growing and then my first child arrived a couple of years ago and we have a second on the way now so just life became too full for that but I, I hope to get back involved again at some point yeah wow like how does that feel to just walk away from something that you've created with your own two hands like you've created something from nothing and you, and you were passionate extremely passionate about this cause to just walk away and yeah it's hard it's weird it's you know it kind of feels a bit like the breakup of a marriage perhaps not that I've actually experienced that exactly but um but you know it's something that's just just been you know it was it, it had dominated my life for the previous 10 years almost but I was also very burnt out I mean it's running kind of we were a, you know a small non-profit the first three years no one earned a cent we were just doing stuff that we thought was worth doing you know we we're a bunch of uni students we didn't really care very much about money we cared about the opportunity we had to do awesome stuff and then slowly you know it, I was able to make a job for myself out of it and then I was able to bring in enough money to, to employ other staff and life gets a lot more stressful when you're employing other people. There's a certain kind of, you know, I don't know, glorious lightness to, to everyone doing it for nothing and just for the purity, you know, there's a purity to that. Um, but, but after a little while, bit of time, I kind of found myself slightly unexpectedly kind of running this, this organization because that it hadn't really been our mindset. You know, I, I, the way we thought about this sort of stuff at uni was as projects we didn't kind of, I didn't think, I'd never heard the phrase social entrepreneur, to be honest, and I didn't even think of myself as founding an organization, as this thing that would be, that would have to continue and have this longevity and this, you know, sustainable model. I just, you know, there was a, there was a thing I wanted to do. There was a particular, we wanted, to, we wanted to set up a website that would allow young people to talk about the stuff they cared about. And so I, I got busy kind of trying to find the people who had the skills that I didn't have and building a team to create that. And then we had another idea that we wanted to publish a magazine. And then we had another idea that we wanted to run a film festival. And then we had an idea that we wanted to send journalists out during the federal elections. So kind of one thing led to another. And it took about three years before I kind of woke up one morning and went, oh, my goodness, I'm right, you know, this is an organization. And I have to actually <laughs> figure out how, I have to figure out how it's going to stick around. It was actually after we did this federal election project. We did this fantastic project where we sent, you know, there's that group of journalists that travel with the prime minister and the opposition leader actually like on their plane, on their bus and right there with them during the campaign. And they're generally, you know, the kind of elite journalists in Australia. We managed to convince both parties to let us put 18-year-olds into that group of journalists to cover to cover the election from a youth perspective. It's the it's the first time I ever wore a suit for, uh, on behalf of Vibewire was when I went to Parliament House and met with the Liberal and the Labor Party, told each of them that the other party had already agreed. And wouldn't it be a shame if we were just sharing, you know, the opposite the other side's perspectives with young voters? And so they both they both then did agree. Um, and it was only kind of after that project, which put us on the map a little bit, and we were very, we were very proud of, but at the same time very dissatisfied with, because you know, you you do something for the first time, and you have a million ideas as to how you could do it better. So we really wanted the chance to do it again and do it better. And so for the first time, I suddenly went, 
I suddenly thought, well, that's three years away. For the first time, I wasn't just kind of focusing on what we're doing right now or what we might do next. I was focused on what would it mean to still be here in three years in order to do this better. And that's when we begin, began to build a bit more sustainability. But it was such a, it was honestly such a grind. I mean, a small nonprofits is a constant hustle. Everything's a constant hustle. But, you know, writing grants and appealing to donors and, you know, not really having, I mean, I, I really love social enterprise. Now that, that we have a business model, we provide a service, people pay us for that service. We're really proud of the work we do and we can scale based on, based on our success with that. Whereas in a way, our funding for VibeWire was somewhat separated from our actual success in engaging and empowering and building a community of, of young people to, to inspire them to engage in our democracy. It was based on our success in inspiring a group of donors and foundations to fund that work. And we regularly had less than three months, you know, runway. A couple of times it got down into the week. So I was once four days away from laying everyone off when a new grant arrived. I mean, it was such a roller coaster that by, by the time I left, I, I kind of had to leave because I just, I didn't have anything else left to give. I probably should have left a year earlier, but I just, there was, I had to, I had to push it a little bit further to get to where I felt I could hand it over. Wow. And what was that like paying yourself through, through Vibewire? You, you, you would have had to pay yourself a wage, right? Like a minimum. Right. Not a very good one, but yeah. Yeah. I can imagine like, uh, you know, what, what do you do with businesses? I personally don't know if I could ever do in the sense that I have a very strong mission. However, I, I, you could you could say I'm a bit of a capitalist in a sense that I you know money is is what fuels our business. It it what it's what keeps it growing and it it's fun for me to get paid. I guess. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, getting paid is way more fun than not getting paid. Yeah, that's and, and, and getting paid a bit better is more fun than getting paid. You know, that's well. That's right. And, you know, maybe one day when when it all becomes, I think, I think it gets to a point in time where you realize that you can make so much money and it doesn't really matter that, that, that the mission outweighs the amount of money. And I think it's so important that the mission that you have is a reflection of how much money you make. But my question to you is, has it always been like that where the mission just it didn't matter how much money you were making. It always has been the mission and, and how, and what advice do you give to people that they want to start a social enterprise or a non-for-profit or doing some form of good in the world and creating a business that, you know, encourages change, uh, substantial change. Like what, what advice would you give to somebody that is concerned about the money piece and how to live and, and all those kinds of things. Cause me and my, my right now, I could never do what you, what you're doing right now, Tom. And well, you could do what I'm doing right now. Cause right now I'm leading a for-profit, but which has a mission baked into our business model. And so that's what I'm so, you know, I, in a way I'm, I'm a capitalist too. I'm interested in how we, how we actually tweak capitalism or, you know, give capitalism a heart. I, I think that social enterprises is really the way of the future. This, this kind of, it's an old fashioned idea that, you know, businesses exist to only make money. Charities are the only people responsible for, you know, social well-being. I think that's becoming a lot more blended. And we, you know, we have this whole, a fairly, you know, big movement now of, of what gets called social enterprises while people debate exactly what that means. And they're in kind of non-profit social enterprises and for-profit social enterprises. But it generally means that they exist by trading. In, in both cases, you don't rely on grants. You, you rely on providing a good or service that people are prepared to pay for. 
but baked into that is that you're creating a social impact as well. So, you know, we, we make our money by helping world-changing projects raise their money. And so our mission, I, I am very mission-driven. I mean, I want to support myself well enough to be sustainable. I have a family now. It's, you know, there's, there's additional, the cost of my life is more than it once was. When I was at university, I had a very, you know, I, I have a friend, um, Tim Longhurst, has this great concept of a minimum viable life. And, and I think often as an entrepreneur, in terms of getting started, you do have to think about what's your minimum viable life? What does that look like to you? How much do you need to earn in the initial stages? And often that's the key to kind of making the leap from from a, corp, from a well-paid corporate job into doing any type of entrepreneurship, which is going to be less certain and probably less well-paid, at least initially. You know, you need to kind of think about what is what is your minimum viable life? My, my minimum viable life is a lot it is a lot more expensive now than it was when it was just me at uni and all I wanted was to, you know, be able to buy beers on Thursday night and see the odd show. So, but that, yeah, but I think social enterprise is really exciting that it can, it does allow you to combine those two things. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to live like, like a monk. You can do very well. And, and, you know, people have become very, very rich, but creating social enterprises, you know, the guys who created Ben and Jerry's are very well off now, but they're, you know, she's no longer with us, but Anita Roddick, Body Shop, you know, you can you can do extraordinarily well now while also doing extraordinary extraordinary amounts of good for the world. I think that's incredibly exciting. And it's one of the things that motivated us to set up Start Some Good was we didn't really feel like there was a place for these new types of companies to go and raise money because all the existing fundraising infrastructure on the web was built for charities and almost all of it was, was exclusively for charities. You had to be a tax deductible. If it was in America, 501c3 registered organization in Australia, you needed DGR status, which is deductible gift recipient status. And, and if you didn't have those things, you were just shut out. And we just thought that's ridiculous. Lots of people will, are, are inspired to help, to help get social enterprises off the ground. People are even prepared to donate to social enterprises, donate to a for-profit, which not very long ago might have seemed like a really paradoxical thing to even think about. But if you're, if you're a, a potential you know, philanthropist and you're inspired to create social impact in the world, and you donate to someone who's starting a not-for-profit, that's awesome. But you know they're going to be coming back to you twice a year for the rest of your life, asking for more money. That's that's the model. They're going to need future injections. Whereas if you can support a social enterprise to get off the ground, and if that social enterprise does have a sustainable model that produces both social outcomes and economic outcomes, then that's all you need to do. You need to get them going. And then and then hopefully they can scale based on their own operations and do ever more ever greater amounts of good in the world. And that's certainly what we're trying to do. This is this is fantastic. You really answered my question well, and you've given me a lot more clarity. Because to be honest, I don't know much about this space. That's why I wanted to come and and have a chat with you, bring you on, because you know you're doing some amazing work. And and we don't really interview that many social entrepreneurs. And quite a few of our community members have said, "I want you. I we, we I would like to see more social entrepreneurs featured." And I think it's important. And we interviewed. Uh, Dan Flynn from Thank You Group. Mm, yeah. And what was interesting is when he described what a social enterprise, like their business model as a social enterprise was that they do not, like he, he would he will only forever get paid probably as much money as you would make working at Coles, like our local supermarket, stacking shelves. Are you able to give more insight to that for our listeners and and how, how that's different to your like you're obviously for profit and he's not for profit or, or how does that work? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Thank You Group is a not for profit technically, but and they're also kind of a I think there's I think of social enterprises kind of falling into two broad buckets. There's the redistributive social enterprises, so they're selling something over here and then 
investing the money over there to, to make good things happen. Thank you, Group in a way, is a classic example of that because their original product, I love, I love their new ranges now with their, their, their soaps and their mueslis, but I could never get very excited about them when they're a bottled water company because I'm like, fundamentally, what we need is to buy less bottled water. Like, bottled water cannot be a social good, even if the money is then getting sent to Africa to help people who don't have access to water. That's great. And I, and I, I totally understand. I've heard them both talk about it. I totally understand. It. We all buy bottled water anyway. So it'd be better to buy a social, you know, it'd be better to buy a bottled water that does some good through, through the profits than, than not. But it would be better, it would be better than either of those to not buy bottled water at all. So I couldn't get very excited about it. I love their new, their new range of products though. And I love that they're expanding in that direction. So they're that kind of redistributive models, which you see a lot. There's a lot of cafes in Melbourne, for instance, that are like that kinfolk cafe and so on that take their profits, send it somewhere else. And then you have, I don't, I need to come up with a better phrase for this, but kind of the, the social enterprise that has its, that has its social impact baked in. So the example in Melbourne might be street, which is a social, which looks on the surface exactly the same as Kinfolk. It's a, it's a social enterprise cafe, but they don't send their money anywhere. They invest their money in training ho- homeless young people in order to make them employable in the hospitality industry. So the whole cafe in a way is a front for this employment scheme, for this employment training you know, and getting your shit together type of, excuse me, um, You're right. uh, <laughs> uh, program that really helps, you know, struggling young people. And so it doesn't matter if they never send a dollar to anyone else. That is the social impact, you know, and as they open, I think they've got three cafes now, every new cafe they open allows them to train more people and change more lives. And so we, we're, we're that kind of social enterprise. We're not sending our money to someone else. We're going to invest it in growing and we're going to try and provide the best crowdfunding platform possible for mission-driven projects, both social enterprises and nonprofits. And if we do a great job of that, well, we will hopefully be, you know, at quite significant scale and profitable ourselves, but we'll only get there by helping other people raise 20 times more. You know, we take 5%. So for every dollar we earn, we've helped, we've helped the sector raise $20. And so, and so those two things, it's kind of, I guess, what makes me feel very comfortable about it is that they're, very, that they're exactly the same thing. The way we make our money is the way we make our impact. So there's no trade-off required between those. We just try and be be the best we can be, and 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 scale a successful, you know, global platform. And part of that is that we have to pay competitive salaries. I mean, we're a bit below that now because we're still early, and a lot of our early team are, are kind of you know, equity invested and, and have made sacrifices, certainly in terms of salary, and and have particularly in the early stages, a bunch of us work for very little. But now we're we're paying not good salaries, but salaries, and that will grow over time. And particularly, you know, as we scale, we're going to have to, we're, we're going to, have to get, you know, great technical talent, and we're going to have to pay for that. And, and that's going to be true. You know, we're going to need really awesome business development talent, and we're going to have to pay for that. We're going to be paying commercial salaries to get the people we need to grow, while also, you know, hopefully making an amazing difference in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, you, this, this, this famous quote, I don't even know if it's a quote, but this thing that always comes back to me constantly is the amount of money you make, and I mentioned it before, is, is in proportion to how well you serve your community. Yeah, exactly. So we're, and well, I said there's no trade-offs. I mean, there might be in the future, you know, there might be a time when we're faced with a choice where we could maximize profit in one direction or make a greater impact in the other. And I think that we would choose impact. That's, that's really what we're focused on. But we can't make impact if we're not profitable, you know, because we'll just, we'll go out of business, we won't exist. And if we don't exist, we're not doing any good in the world. So we're running it as a business. That is the way we think about it. But what motivates us to put in the hard yards that are inevitably involved in getting any entrepreneurial venture off the ground is because we care very deeply about, about helping people make a difference for their communities. You know, this is, this is awesome. 
So tell me back to the early days, Tom, when you first started. Uh, did you have to raise capital? Is it bootstrap? Is it start some good bootstrap? You know, how, tell, take us back to that. We have been bootstrapped. Yeah, we've just so we're four years in and we've just raised capital for the first time. So it's always been bootstrapped. Alex and I, we actually ran, we actually ran a small crowdfunding campaign before we launched on a, on a different platform at the time. You know, what do you start some good? But they just, we didn't exist then. That was not, not so much about the money, but more about having the experience. We figured we should run a crowdfunding campaign before we launched a crowdfunding platform. That sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised how few people do that. Because, gee, you learn a lot by actually doing it, not just by watching other people or helping other people do it. So we, we ran a small campaign ourselves. We raised, you know, less than $10,000, not a huge amount of money. And then we got going. And it was just kind of, yeah, grit and grind, really. So I was on a sponsored working visa in the US, so I didn't have a lot of flexibility. I had to work full-time, and I had to work for the specific employer that had, that had sponsored me. So Alex, my co-founder, who's American, quit his job and went full-time on it. And I actually directed, I think, maybe 15% of my salary straight to him each month to help keep him afloat while he did that. He, he put a lot more hours into it. I put more money into it because I had the, the full-time job and a, a pretty decent paying full-time job. I was over in Silicon Valley. By now, working for a nonprofit, but a nonprofit, just coming back, kind of touching on that conversation again, that paid really competitive salaries because they had to in Silicon Valley or, or no one would work for them. Well, not, not the people they wanted anyway. So we did that for, I guess, the first year and, and really had relied for the first couple of years on interns and volunteers and people paid kind of, I guess, kind of like a commission type structure based on we, we, we shared revenue. We had revenue splits with a lot of our staff. So, you know, we're happy to share the revenue that comes in, but we can't spend more than the revenue that comes in. So we had all these kind of revenue split arrangements with our various staff. So everyone was, I guess, really connected to the actual success of the company and also that we weren't spending money we didn't have. We had no cash reserves in the bank, really. We were just kind of month to month for a really long time. But we've, we've managed to, you know, we, the first couple of years were, were woeful, really, in terms of amount raised on the platform. If, if I'd been more business focused, I probably would have pivoted or, or quit and done something different. But we, we, you know, kept pushing. And um, and partly I think it was coming back to Australia that really helped move us into a more of a growth base because it was kind of easier to break through here. I think people often fantasize that San Francisco, the Bay Area is the only, you know, the best place in the world to launch any type of startup. And, and that's obviously true for a lot of for a lot of startups, particularly those that are looking to be venture funded at scale pretty early. But it was actually, you know, the Bay Area in particular and America in general was an incredibly noisy market as well. And as a very small player, very hard to kind of get your head above the parapet, which is whereas Australia is a much smaller market. You know, it was easier to become a medium-sized fish in this smaller pond. And by becoming a medium-sized fish, good things start to happen. People start inviting us to conferences. Corporates start approaching us about partnering. Obviously, just generally great projects that we want to work with come to us without us having to kind of find them and sell ourselves to them one by one. So th- things kind of just started to, to kind of move in the right direction maybe about 18 months ago or but two years ago now, probably, start of 2013, we actually began to, to move upwards on the grade. It didn't exactly hockey stick, but it was a nice upward slope, you know, like a, like a good hill. And we've been kind of growing really consistently ever since then. And, and thanks to that growth, we were able to raise money last year, and that's enabled us. We've doubled our team since the end of last year. Not in terms of hours worked, because we were seven and now we're 14. All the new people are part-timers. So the total kind of, we still only, of the 14, there are three full-timers and 11 part-timers and everyone's spread out around the world. We're a virtual team. So we're in five countries and nine cities out of the 14, the 14 team members. But yeah, it's exciting. I have to say it's a, it is, you were talking before, it's a lot more fun just as it's more fun to pay yourself than to be completely impoverished. It's more fun to have like a professional team than to be reliant on interns or just to be, you know, working 20 hours a day yourself. Yeah. Cause that's, that's just the feeling I get. Like, 
you just have to keep going for so long and it's it's I could never do it but the way you've like after a conversation I feel quite comfortable with with that fact like you know maybe one day I yeah. I, I find something sometimes there. the winners are just the ones who stick with it the longest mm. sorry Nathan tell you yeah. but I think I, I can't remember Paul Graham said this once but just that resilience is often the the secret to entrepreneurial success that people often I think pivot, people pivot too quickly oh often. I agree and there's a lot of breakthrough success. You know, it's like the band that tours for five years in their van and suddenly has a song that hits the radio and are, are a quote-unquote overnight success. But that overnight success was built on five years of perfecting their music by playing to live audiences and jamming and, you know, writing music and getting getting really good, getting worthy of, of that of that success. And I think kind of entrepreneurialism, it, it, entrepreneurial ventures, it's often the same. And there's some amazing breakthroughs, like Pinterest. Pinterest went nowhere for like two or three years. No one had heard of it. You know, people think of Pinterest as being this like launched, bang, scale. But actually there's this like three years that no one even knows about because by definition no one was using it. It hadn't broken through. The founder was told to pivot or shut it down a heap of different times. No one wanted to support them. And then suddenly suddenly there's a breakout. And, and you hear that story over and over again. And I guess, you know, I hope that we will one day be a great example of that as well when we're, when we're at greater scale and we'll be able to point back to those early years and say, you know, it's just part of the journey. Yeah, no, that's right. So how, how do you gauge, though, when to pivot, when to give up, or you just never give up? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I'm probably, I am probably more on the never give up side of things, which I know is also kind of not, not, <laughs> not the best. Oh, I'm the necessarily. same. That's just my bias. I'm, I'm just really stubborn. You know, I, I think kind of I'm naive plus stubborn, which I think is often true. For, you know, I'm not one that kind of studies a market really carefully, what is the size of the market, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just, I'm, I'm pulled around by my passions to a certain extent. I've tried to figure out how to make a life out of those passions and, you know, how to build a business out of, out of supporting the kind of things that I want to see in the world. And my, my tendency is to, yeah, stick with it until I fall in a heap, I guess, which, which is probably, you know, not, not always the right thing. I think there's a, there is definitely a time to quit. We did actually last year, we really felt like even though we were growing strongly through all of last year, we felt like if we couldn't raise money, we might have to quit because there were just, we just needed to invest in our technology. And while we were, we were at break even in terms of our very, you know, super lean costs, underpaid staff, including ourselves and all the rest of it. But we were, you know, we were covering, we were covering those costs every month. So on the one hand, we weren't going anywhere. But on the other hand, the road to actually being able to put aside the kind of amount that we needed to really rebuild the platform and invest in our technology, you know, to actually have that kind of a surplus or profit just felt so far away that we felt like we couldn't actually get there with the current site, which created a kind of paradox of even though we're growing, we felt like it was a, a kind of a, there was a, a ticking kind of time bomb in terms of we need to actually kind of really make some serious investments in our, in our site and our platform in order to scale. But we need to scale in order to actually, you know, make enough money to invest in it. And so we're like, well, the only, the only solution to this problem is investment. This is exactly when is when investment is in fact most needed, and 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 when you can raise investment in a way is when you're on a growth trajectory, but there's clearly kind of a hump that you need to overcome, and, and investment required to accelerate or or overcome that. And so we were then able to raise those funds. But I but I had thought to myself whether whether I would have actually followed through with it is another thing. But I had I had had some serious chats with myself about if you can't raise this money, this is kind of you just you know you don't want to cling on to this to the bitter end. It's kind of a, it's kind of a go go big or go home moment. But we're going big, and that's that's my preferred option. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm curious, did you ever f consider going and raising the funding on your own platform? Yeah, we did, but we just didn't feel like it was the right move, to be honest. It's it's so crowdfunding is not the best method for every different for every type of project in the world. 
And one of the types of projects that are harder to raise money on crowdfunding for is infrastructure. And so Start Some Good itself is infrastructure for making change, right? But it doesn't make change on its own. We could build the world's best crowdfunding platform, but if no one used it, nothing happens. And so all the change is created by the things that happen after, you know, what happens once the infrastructure is put in place. But it's hard to actually quantify or describe those things in a way that kind of pulls the heartstrings and inspires people to the extent that they want to put their own money in. Kind of the best stories for crowdfunding go something along the lines of, I need your help to raise this particular amount of money. We're then going to spend that money doing these actions, and then these actions will produce these changes in the world. Like, dot, 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 like that, that simple. Like, if I have the money, I can do this stuff, and if I do this stuff, this will, this will change. This will happen. Our story instead is, if we raise this amount of money, we're going to build this platform. Then other people, who we can't exactly tell you who they are, but trust me, they'll be good people, will use the platform to raise money to run great projects. Can't tell you exactly what those projects are, but they'll be good projects. And those projects will then change the world. So it's kind of like a couple of extra steps with big question marks over them. So those sorts of stories, like building that sort of infrastructure, is actually it's a hard sell through crowdfunding. And particularly the kinds of amounts we needed, which was, you know, in the solid several hundred thousand dollars, amount is a, is, would be a huge rage for crowdfunding. And certainly we couldn't try and then fail on our own platform, you know, so it's just felt too risky. It just, it just felt like a classic example where what we actually just needed was equity investment. You know, we needed someone just to come on board and to, you know, to essentially buy a chunk of the company and to be, to be a partner with us. And, and also, you know, we felt like we wanted smart money, not just the cash, but a partner who would help us grow. And that, that's what we were able to find with a Melbourne firm, Trimantium, who are experts at, at scaling entrepreneurial ventures and they provide a lot of additional support in terms of back office support Uh, which is really really great for us okay awesome so let's like also run one back to i want to talk about the early days i want to want you to take me back to that moment when you had your first campaign like listed on the platform that was funded can you take me back to that moment and what it was like and can you describe that to our audience because i think There are a lot of people that are starting crowdfunding platforms now for all sorts of different, I guess, communities, and it's not easy. No, it's really hard, actually. I can can tell you. (laughs) I can imagine how hard it is. Are the ultimate builder and they won't come? Yeah. Fundraising infrastructure in general. I meet so many young entrepreneurs who, who are building various types of fundraising mechanics, apps, and crowdfunding platforms and so on, and they've and they have. They hardly have ever given thought to why would someone use theirs versus someone else's. They know kind of, they know charities always say they need more money. We've built a way for them to, to make more money. Therefore, they will use our thing to raise money. And actually, no, charities are, you know, they need more money, but it's not that they have a lack of, of options for approaches to fundraising. They have a lack of capacity. They don't want, you know, they're, they're actually relatively slow movers in terms of trying new things, et cetera, et cetera. So you see like new crowdfunding platforms launch, you know, every day. And mostly they fail to actually achieve any traction in terms of projects because they haven't really thought very much about where those projects are going to come from and why they would choose them rather than someone, someone else. And so we spent, you know, we, we actually spent, I guess it was four or five months just to recruit the first 10 projects on the platform. We couldn't kind of, you can't open a crowdfunding platform and then wait to see who turns up. You have to launch with, with projects or else the whole place looks like a ghost town. Yeah, that's um, right. So it took us a while to, to kind of get that first group to kind of sign on to something that didn't exist yet. And then to launch with us, I can't remember exactly, it was, it was at least 10. We felt like it had to be double figures. It might have been 12, actually, in the end. And, yeah, then that first day, I had, I'd had signed, I'd agreed to a web, you know, a classic, the website wasn't finished. I'd, I'd agreed to give a webinar presenting this new web website on March 1. The night before, it's still not quite up. We're, like, working through the night. It went live about an hour before I 
appeared on that webinar. And yeah, watching the first, the very first donations come through was, was really amazing. Watching the first project reach its goal, which was, you know, a small project. I think I raised like a thousand dollars, but it was amazing. We're like, well, that's, you know, that, that's, that project's now happening in the world. They're now out there. I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember what it was. There. I think it was some community gardening initiative in the Bay Area. And we're like, well, this is, this is amazing. There's, this is now a community garden that's going to be built and opened, you know, nutritious community capital that's been built locally, great food that people, you know, nutritious food they're going to have access to, real things, real things in the real world that are happening thanks to our, our website. And that felt really amazing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure it would have. Are you able to give an insight, some marketing tactics, strategies around you guys, how you guys got your first thousand customers? I, I always like to hear what's working out there for certain businesses and online businesses mm. or models. What's been working good for you guys that, that might be of interest? A lot of the stuff that's worked best for us in these early stages is, is possibly stuff that is not completely scalable. But I think that's often true, you know, in the early stages. Uh, so it's a lot of, you know, it's been a lot of in-person. So I, 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 I do a lot of speaking engagements i think events are incredibly useful because they put the hard work into gathering you know those thousand people in a room and if it's the right you know in the in the kind of social enterprise and, and social change sector conferences and so on in most sectors there are conferences and if it's the right kind of conference they're doing the hustle to bring the people you want to talk to into the room for you so i find conferences an incredibly kind of focused and effective way to like get in front of you know provided you pick the right conferences they can also be a waste of time if you're flying all over the place to speak to stuff that's poorly aligned but that's been really big for us. And as I said, that was, I guess, part of what allowed us to kind of really grow, particularly here in Australia, very strongly, is that it's only so big a sector in Australia. So it didn't take long. And I was pretty well connected in the sector before I left. So I got back and kind of reintroduced myself and started showing up to a few things and very quickly started getting invitations to talk to things. And, of course, those lead to more invitations to talk to things. And it doesn't take long, but, you know, in a, in a market the size of Australia, you're at all the key events. You can actually be at all the key events without, you know, there's few enough of them that you can turn up to all of them and so on. And so I've probably given, I don't know, 100 plus talks, pub their speeches in Australia, like ranging from, you know, workshops, which sometimes we run for up to three hours, teaching like our crowdfunding masterclass to being on a panel to giving a keynote. And so I've probably spoken in front of some tens of thousands of very well, you know, very market appropriate people for that. That's been really good for us. We also, our partnerships have been, you know, kind of starting when we were bootstrapped, we knew it wasn't going to be paid acquisition. What was it going to be? And <laughs> yeah. we figured it, you know, partnerships has also always been really key for us. So we thought, who else is doing the work of building community with the kind of people that we want to reach? So for us, particularly early on, our passion was really, how do you help new people get started? How do you, how do you help, you know, your listeners who are sitting there, they have a passion to make a difference and they have an idea for how they might be able to do that, but they don't know how to get started. How do we help those people take that leap from idea to action? Because it's only once you take that leap that you can actually create impact, of course. And so we're very focused early. Now we now we're you know we we put a lot of effort into trying to bring established nonprofits to the platform as well and established social enterprises. But particularly then we're very focused on the kind of what you might call like the emerging social entrepreneurs. And we thought, well, where do we find them? And and it turns out there's a bunch of you know university courses, incubators, various types of support programs that actually are already building community with these people and already helping people make that leap. From, you know, in Australia, for instance, there's a school for social entrepreneurs. There's the Center for Sustainability Leadership. There's these courses that are helping people take their ideas and take action with them. So we thought, well, we can just access those people. And so we've taken, we've always taken a very strong partnership approach. And originally that was very manual. You know, we would try and just connect with them and we'd go and talk at their events and we'd send special offers to their students. But increasingly, particularly when our new platform launches, it's going to be 
much more digital and scalable that will actually build, you know, we, we, the new platform's been built around a whole set of APIs that will allow, actually able to plug in to a bunch of other platforms that allow hopefully our projects to flow. You know, it's people who are using a volunteer platform to then be invited. Do you need to raise, you know, do you need more than just volunteers? Do you need funding as well to then come across to our platform and raise those funds and the same offer occurring in reverse? So partnerships continue to be really important to us, but the kind of partnership we're now pursuing is evolving into being something that is a bit more lower touch and and scalable through technology. Wow, this is this is great. Two last questions, Tom. One, how do you define a change maker? Because there's a lot of people throw that word word around. They say they want to change the world. It's it's thrown around a lot. Yeah, and I, I think that's good. People should. It's the word that people should throw around. I mean, I think change maker kind of has emerged as a word, which is an attempt, I think, to to kind of be a catch all word for all the different ways in which you might try and be involved in creating change. So, you know, social entrepreneurship is an approach making essentially, which is around building organizations, you know, building businesses, I would say, or building organizations capable of creating scalable change in the long term. Activism is another methodology for creating change. Going into politics might be another. Journalism for some people. A lot of journalists are very much driven around, you know, revealing the truth and creating change in that way. Philanthropy, giving money to other people and causes is another way of creating change. So, Change maker as a kind of concept is an attempt to kind of put an umbrella over all of those and say, well, you can be you can be pursuing making a difference in all these different ways. You're all change makers, and and this is kind of I guess comes from Ashoka and the work I did there, which is their whole language around everyone a change maker. So everyone can be a change maker, but in their own way. It may be volunteering for an afternoon. It may be how you help out with the neighbor's kids, even you know, or you take a meal once a week to an elderly person on your street. People can really make a difference in their own lives and for their communities in, in, a, in a wide variety of different ways. And that's, I guess, what we want to Ben and Jerry's. People can think about how to do so. You know, you might be that you want to create a one-off event, which is a clean-up of your local parkland, and you want to rally your neighbours to get together and do that. That's another type of project that we are really driven to support because previously if you'd wanted to get your neighbours together and do a park clean-up and you felt like you needed $1,000 to hire the bin and get, you know, a bunch of gloves, you would have had to set up Park Cleanup Inc., in order to go and actually fundraise that money. And we say, that's ridiculous. You should just be able to put that appeal out to your neighbours, supporting traditional nonprofits and social enterprises on our platform. We also support unincorporated groups, so just groups of citizens who want to want to do something together and need a few dollars to make that happen. Oh, awesome. Well, this is a great definition. Now, my last question, Tom, and we have to wrap up, is if somebody has an idea, they want to spark change, have something that they want to do, they want to make an impact, besides using start some good as your platform of choice to mm -hmm. get that funding to get that initial capital to get it off the ground how else can people get started i think the place to start is, is usually by meeting other people and talking to them about your idea you know there's some great meetups in almost every city you know if you go to meetup.com and search for change makers social change social enterprise a few phrases like that you'll certainly find i think local meetup groups in your local area we can because i think that process of bouncing ideas around is really really important getting feedback and also finding out what else is out there because it may be better to actually go and ally with someone else or to get involved in their project than to necessarily start your own if, if the thing you want to do is, is already out there then we need people to you know ally with one another to, 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 to make things happen so i think that's really important and i think part of that is the listening and the learning but part of that's also the, t the telling talking about your passions and getting that out there because i think that's kind of making that courageous step of saying this is a thing i really care about i'm going to do something about and when you put yourself out there like that incredible things can happen and, and crowdfunding is a great example of that you know because it's a real it's a real act of putting yourself out there to launch a crowdfunding campaign you're risking public failure 
in order to hopefully achieve public success. But because you're doing that in public, rather than, let's say, just writing a grant application, applying for a bank loan, or even pitching to a VC, all of which are private successes and failures, because you're doing it in public, it's amazing the other types of support, just dollars. Of course, dollars are what you're thinking about and what you want to achieve if you're crowdfunding at all. But we have so many stories of people who their biggest success wasn't just the dollars, it was what else happened thanks to their crowdfunding. For instance, we had a stationary social enterprise launch last year, and they, they did well. They raised like $20,000 on the platform to launch their first range of stationary. They distribute all their fun, all their profits to um, women's girl, girls' education in the developing world. But they also got a call from a buyer at a major national stationary retail chain, which they're now in. So like only a couple of months after the launch, they're now rolling out nationally into a couple of hundred stores, scaling incredibly fast as a result of that. And that was thanks to the fact that it happened in public. If they'd just written a grant application and got that same money, well, that's great. But now you're starting from scratch. You have cash, but nothing else. Whereas they exited their campaign with cash plus customers plus a, plus a major retail partner, which is pretty extraordinary. But I think while that's a big example of that, I think a lot of incredible things can happen when you actually begin to put yourself out there and express your passion and share your passion with the world. You'll find people who want to help you. You'll find people who will connect you to other opportunities. And if the next step for you is that you need to raise a bit of funds, of course, we would love to work with you. And we have a lot of resources on our site as well. Our, our whole model is to be really high touch. We're very coaching oriented because that's, you know, that's kind of where our mission meets the road is the extra assistance and the extra care we, we take in helping people set up their campaigns and give themselves the best chance of success. We can't guarantee success because people have to you know, hustle for that themselves. But we do have the highest success rate of any major platform. And that's because we do we try harder. There's no magic to that. But you'll also find there's a free email course. There's heaps of materials on our website. So that might be a, a nice place to start reading about what's involved and even getting a sense of what are the steps that you'll need to undertake if you are going to launch a fundraising campaign. Awesome. Well, look, Tom, we will wrap there. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. If, so much for having me, Nathan. Yeah, absolute pleasure. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.